Welcome to this episode of Beaverpod, the clinical catch-ups. The following session was recorded live during the Beaver Clinical Catch-ups webinars. For the full webinar experience, Beaver members can find past sessions online via the Beaver website. What we're going to try and do tonight is um, um, have a bit of a conversation, really. I'm, I'm going to throw a few scenarios at, at Graham and Ian and... Uh, we're hopefully going to debate those and, and throw up a few ideas and issues that we can discuss. So if, if that stimulates you to ask any questions, as Sarah says, please do um, type away there in the chat box. Um, and to that end, we'll, um, we'll crack on. And um, for the, um, oops, how's that going to work? Um, I'll pop up the first scenario, which, um, I think Ian, you're going to have a look at for us. Um, it's uh, you're arriving at a to do a vetting um, for a pony club pony, um, and it's going to be undertaken a local but unfamiliar yard to you on behalf of a distant client, not a regular client of the practice. The pony's in the field when you get there, despite the fact that your receptionist went through the standard pro forma and and asked that it be stabled, but otherwise it looks okay. Um, you ask to see the pony's passport and the, the vendor advises that she she doesn't have it and you search for a microchip and you can't find one of those either so what are you going to do about that okay um and i i guess this isn't an uncommon thing uh that to, to find there if, if we think about the uh, identification first of all you're you're there you're going to examine the horse that uh, pony that's presented to you you need to identify it um, and in the absence of passport or microchip you're going to take the uh, markings down it is now we're aware that all um, horses sh should have a microchip it's a legal requirement and so you you'd, you'd want to let the client know your the purchaser know that you didn't find a microchip and, and also from a selling a horse point of view they they should have a passport um but that's not for us to police i would say uh, there but uh, it would be right to make the uh, purchaser aware of that and and if i came across that i i think i would continue with the examination rather than be phoning the client up uh, to say oh i i can't identify the horse there um with regard to the uh, pony still being in the field there. I, I guess you, you think, why do you ask them to be stood in so that you can see if they're stiff um, when they come out of the box and how they are? Um, in, in this situation, again, has happened to me, I would continue with the examination, but I would make sure I discuss that point with the purchaser when I phone them afterwards and say, of course, that, you know, despite us asking, them to keep the pony in it was out in the field and talk about the limitations um or you know what that may mean that it was loosened up and it might be different when it came out uh, stiff so i would continue but communicate those through to the purchaser 
So are those things that you're just going to talk about, Ian, in the in the sort of post-vetting um, debrief? Or, I mean, I, I suspect that's probably plenty, but would you do more than that? Would you put it on the certificate or not, really? Is it just something to convey and communicate um, in the debrief? Uh, I would, all of those bits would be on the certificate as far as I'm concerned. Okay. There, you, you, you're going to put, you didn't find a um, microchip and, and you, and, and passport there. And I think it's just a, a comment that Pony was in, in the field or wasn't stable prior to the examination. And then it, I, I don't see a harm with that being on the certificate. That at least it would be in your notes and you've discussed it. Yeah. But I would see no no harm with that being on there. Sure. What about you, Graham? Is, it, is that in line with your general approach in these situations? Yeah, my, my approach would be to, um, Definitely bet the horse, but um, but note everything that Ian's mentioned or that's included in this scenario on the form. Yeah. Um, and I probably would point out to the to purchaser that that by rights, by law, that horse shouldn't really be owned or transported really without a passport. Sure, sure. Okay, well that's that's good. It's not going to stop us doing the job, so we can crack on. Um, well, let's have a look at this one then. Uh, you're in the hot seat, Graham. You may as well stay there. Um, this is um, you're heading off to to vet a horse. You're driving uh, perhaps 70, 80 miles out of the normal area, and um, this is a six-year-old, reasonable quality dressage prospect for a good client, being sold by a dealer who regularly buys horses in from the continent. And but while you're on route, the the phone rings and. Um, your client, the purchaser, says that um, they forgot to mention, but the vendor's got a whole stack of uh, x-rays from this horse that they got when they bought it. And um, they want you to have a look at that before you waste your time trotting it up and down. How are you going to go on with that? <clears throat> yeah, um, I think, obviously, the provision of radiographs prior to purchase examination is becoming more increasingly common um it's there's there's a massive variation in the in the quality of the of the radiographs uh, how they're presented in dicom or jpeg or whatever uh there's a variety of issues regarding labeling um names uh, views etc uh, even dates um so radiographs present a problem often come what may, to be presented with them on arrival at the purchase examination itself would be a very nasty shock. And um, I think at that point in time, I'd be saying, look, um, I'm just gonna crack on and get the horse um, vetted. Um, and I will review the radiographs at my leisure afterwards, um, given that they're probably gonna be presented on a phone or an iPad or such like um, so i certainly wouldn't want to be um trying to deal with all those issues of radiographic uh, of, of radiological evaluation of radiographs when i was actually there to perform a, a vetting and i hadn't had any prior warning of it so my advice to the client would be let's get the horse vetted and review the radiographs at our leisure and determine whether or not the quality is good enough and should they not be, or the labelling is inappropriate in some way, or the views are deficient, then we will discuss taking 
radiographs, yeah. uh, current yeah. radiographs. So you might end up looking at them and then back home that evening or 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 some later stage. Is that is that what you're saying? I would definitely view those radiographs and make comment on them and include incorporate them in my report if I felt the quality was good enough. If I didn't feel the quality or the views weren't up to my expectation, then I would probably recommend that radiographs were were taken. Um, so you're not it, worried that you, you're not worried that when you look at the X-rays then and you find some nasty lesions or something, and the client then says, "Oh, you shouldn't have wasted your time. I'm not paying you two hundred quid." <laughs> I thought you'd trip me up with that one, yeah. So I was half expecting that, um, which which comes down to, I suppose, to do you have a cursory view to look for major issues, um, which I must admit did happen to me on one occasion where I clearly spotted a fairly dramatic change in the hock. However, the horse was an aging horse, um, and I I did I did consider the possibility that the horse might even be sound despite the radiographic finding. So a cursory examination might have revealed something fairly interesting and fairly concerning. However, the horse may still present very well. So, yeah. um, you know, it's as long as it's broad sure. in that sense. Yeah. And are you happy looking at JPEGs or do you, do you always insist on dicons? It's just that, not, not just practical, really. Uh, oh. Well, it... it, it that's a very good question, to be honest. Um, you know, it, it is it's disappointing to get JPEGs and certainly some of them of not great quality. Um, but I, I do I do accept it uh, if the quality if I believe the quality is good enough for me to extract as much information as I require. But I'd always prefer to have DICOM. They're probably better than the uh, than some of the old celluloids that you used to look at back in the day. But um, it's just where the standard is nowadays, I suppose. So, Ian, what about you? Are you happy with JPEGs, or would you would you flag up the fact that you prefer to have DICOMs, or are you just quite happy if they look all right? I I think um, it would be it's nice to have DICOMs, but if you think you can see all you need to see on the JPEG, then I would go with that. I'd, I'd be a little bit um, more forceful about not looking at those before the examination. I, I think you're a bit at risk to say I'll have a cursory look and see if there's anything major and then if when you get back you do find something else the client might think well how come you didn't see that if it's major enough to be worried about there so I, I probably would say if, if if you're on the way they had plenty of time to talk about those x-rays before you set off and I would have um, said no clinical examination uh, now and we'll look at whatever pictures and make sure they relate to the horse and they're good enough and full yeah. setting of, of them. Yeah, that um, would be my, my preference is just to crack on, get the horse vetted and, and then interpret any changes with, you know, in, in the light of the findings of the vetting. And just one random question for me. Would you have a time limit on how old those radiographs were? I mean, presumably you'd expect them to be recent, but how recent's recent? They're often not recent. I mean, yes, the one I did yesterday, the, the radiographs were two years old. And, it, you know, I, I had to point that out to the purchaser that the, the x-rays were two years old and a six-year-old horse. So actually that's quite a significant chunk of its early life has passed since the x-rays. So, you know, I, I did point that out and said that they, you know, they only really had 
they didn't really have the value that they probably felt they did have given that they were two years old. Do you have I, don't, a, I, don't have a, I don't have a cutoff point. David, do you have a comment there? No, no, no. I think the point yeah. is that the, I was going to come on and ask a, a similar related question, actually, which was about the provenance of them. I, do you ever point out the point out the age that so things could have changed in the interim between when they were taken and, and what you're looking at now? But also, of course, if those x-rays have been produced by another um, source, you, you don't know which horse it was they were actually x-raying, do you? I mean, it, it could be any horse labelled up as any horse. Do you ever point that risk out or do you don't think we need to? I, I, it concerns me enormously, especially, well, maybe this is an inappropriate thing to say, but um, if, I don't, if they're coming from a, another country, so I don't know the practice, I don't know the names of the vets and so on, but, um, but you know, somebody could, and I, and I have, um, managed to prove on one occasion that a set of x-rays was not all from the same horse um, and uh, it was a slight oversight on their part but you know they put in a couple of x-rays of the right for fetlock which were clearly different um, and yeah. the same view but clearly different one showing a lesion and one not and it was quite obvious that two horses had been incorporated in one set absolutely yeah and and clever things are done with post radiography processing as well you know there's all sorts of things that can be done so i do wonder whether there isn't a, um, a general warning that um, could attach to radiographs that you haven't obtained yourself um, to to purchases that that this is what i think of these radiographs but of course i can't be certain where they come from or which horse these are taken from i, I just wonder whether that might be something to bear in mind just moving on, um, but still on the subject of radiographs. Uh, so you, you're taking them yourself. Um, so these aren't provided for you. You've gone with the kit and uh, you're, you're going to get the images on the day. Does that change your approach to the assessment of them at all? Or, or what is your approach? How do you deal with those in terms of uh, you might be taking 24, 26 images? Uh, uh, personally, I, I always um, um, make it clear to vendor and purchaser that I'm taking x-rays, I'm looking at the uh, images as they come up for positioning and quality. I'm not looking at them with a view to um, reporting any pathology that I see. Um, so, and I make it very clear to the purchaser that I will, if they're not present, that I will call them um, that evening when I've looked at them back at the clinic on a, on a big screen when they've been downloaded. Uh, and even if they are present, I, I give the same caveat um, and, and, and make it very clear that this is just a laptop screen, which is probably a bit dirty in a dark, in, in an inappropriate place uh, with the light being inappropriate, my eyesight not being good enough because I can't find my glasses. Therefore, I will definitely be looking at these later and reporting on them, but not now. So it's all about it, uh, angles, views and, and quality on the day. Is that would that accord with your practice, Ian? And uh, yeah, uh, I, I I've done that even when the uh, purchasers turned up with the trailer there, and I had to drive an hour and a half back to the practice to look at them. I I, I wasn't going to be drawn into giving an opinion for them to pick the horse up there and then and drive away with it without being able to have a proper look at them. Yeah, and and yeah, you know, make comments. You know, they they spend quite a lot of money on that, and you you do want to proper proper look yeah um, at them i wonder if it's worth um 
might be worth considering getting the uh, the, re the reception staff, the, the guys in the office that take the booking to probably possibly set expectations in that regard. If purchasers are booking radiographs as well, that that that, that, that you know from the outset it's explained that 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 won't be all dealt with on the day. Just just a thought. So we've had a couple of other points come up. Just going back to your previous, the value of the animal for the previous, the dressage horse for the previous case. Um, there's a comment that um, any animal at that sort of value would normally require insurance companies, um, would normally require current radiographs as part of a PPE. Um, would that, if you then left with two sets of x-rays, um, would that impinge or would you just only use the PPE one, only use the ones that you've taken out the PPE for the insurance. Got you, yeah. So there's two sets of radiographs, Graham. Are you going to look at them both? Um, well, the, the set that you're provided with um, will invariably not be the set that the insurance company, the British insurance company will be requesting. Um, that just be, because often the, the Dutch or German set is quite a different set to that requested by a British insurance company. So, um, in other words, it, 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 it is almost certain that you will be taking your own radiographs. Uh, uh, the only point I suppose there is that you may have an extensive set provided to you by a European vet, albeit not all the views you wanted, but a lot more bits of the horse than you probably would have done if you were just doing an insurance set. So you are gonna have two sets of x-rays to look at, um, but um, but the insurance set will probably be a, a, a different set. Um, yeah. I, would that be I, fair, I, David? I, I'm sure that's right. Yeah, Ian, tell, tell us a bit more about the insurance side, you get involved in that. So, well, no, no, I, I think they, they do want re recent ones, but the, these things shouldn't be a surprise because I, I think one of the key things is your, your receptionist organised this, but the, the vet should speak to the purchaser or whoever they're going to be talking with afterwards and have the discussion about yeah. the x-rays are, are too old right. are you going to be insuring the horse what what are the requirements you, you shouldn't have a surprise on the way there or when no. you get there no that's a good point good point okay let's let's move off um radiographs um just now and um get i was um gonna throw up a couple of scenarios here perhaps if you'd like to take a um ian and if you take b graham the 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 variations on a theme really um the, these are both uh well the first is a pony the second is a horse but at, um in various ways during the the pre-purchase examination they exhibit a very low degree of lameness generally when um, tested on a, um, a very relatively severe test of being lunged on the hard surface um and um on the uh in in Example B, um, when the um, again when it's lunged um, on the right hind on the right circle when ridden in a deep school. So I'm sure I I certainly came across this sort of thing frequently. I'm sure you do as well. And, you know, great many horses are slightly lame, and 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 that they are so while they're doing their everyday working job quite successfully. I, you know, many of us will have seen. The vast majority of, of horses, to be honest, that make it to four-star level in a venting world are, have, have lameness at some stage of, of a very mild degree. They're, they're perfectly fit to uh, to do the job and compete successfully. So 
how, how do you personally and practically deal with this this situation of, of the horse that's um, otherwise absolutely fine but has got a very low level of lameness at, and during some element of the of the pre-purchase examination so Ian, do you want to kick us off with this with this pony this is a pony club pony that's just ever so slightly lame right for on the hard circle but rides and does everything else absolutely well um, cracking little pony no problem with flexion tests but it, it is one or two tenths lane right for on the hard circle, no matter what you do to it. And, and you can't, no reason why, nothing to, to point at why. Yeah, and, and so just to recap that, you, you've, you've looked at that um, more, more than once at, at the first, you know, at stage two, and then you've looked again afterwards and because you were concerned, you trotted it on a circle at, at the end. Yeah, that would be unusual, wouldn't it? But because you saw that the first time, you thought you'd do it again, because you're, you're yeah. very good and very keen. Yeah. Well, well, you're trying to give the pony a chance, aren't yeah, you? Yeah. Really, because you, the, the person wants to to buy there. But ten, ten years old in a fourteen-two is is early in their life. There's a lot of time ahead, and I I would be a little bit concerned uh, about that. I mean, it goes without saying that I would um, re report record all of that, as opposed to the occasional. Um, step where you think well is that repeatable or is it not but this is very repeatable and so that that gets um reported recorded and and i i would be concerned the pony pony clubs they do an awful lot of work on ground that's very hard sometime and you you'd be worried uh, i'd be worried that it would be picked up if they're doing dressage tests or getting worse and and i think with these ponies i always think that you know, the upset of the kid adults you, you hope can put up with taking a risk and understand that they've done. But I, I would be concerned and I would probably be erring on the side of, on the balance of probabilities, I think this is, this may affect the pony. Okay. So in, in you know, I, I hate the phrase pass and fail, but in, in old money, this would be one that you wouldn't be giving a favourable opinion on. You'd be... I, uh, you'd be having... Uh, if if the people wanted to go go ahead with it, the terms that I often put on the bottom of certificates, implications of low-grade lameness seen when trotted on a circle, firm circle, fully discussed yeah. there. And, and often you would put insurance implications discussed. So, so yeah. you've had that very full discussion of the, this, there is a greater risk attached uh, to, to this. Um, okay, so put the, put the details of that scenario aside. Do you ever pass um, a horse that's one or two tenths lame at any stage during the vetting? Are, are they all going to get an unfavorable opinion? No, no. I, I, I think, I, well, it's, it's, uh, your a, a and B there, the next one, the older schoolmaster, a little bit lame. I, I, I think you can go, go with that. And I spend... Um, some of my pastime going out hunting, and I, th I think half the horses are lame out there, and they're still sure. doing their job. So yeah. I, I, I think you, you can accept it. It's a, a pony for a kid that's only ten that's going to want to be sold on several times, probably in it in its life as kids grow out of it would be on the worry list to me. Sure, Graham. What, what do you want to talk about the next one? Uh, this is the sixteen three. Um, thoroughbred cross, advanced event, uh, done, been there, done it, got all the badges, um, but it's going to take a step down in its work and uh, go and be uh, some riding club. 
owner's pride and joy. Yeah, I, I think Cammy's already stolen my thunder there, so I, it's fairly... <laughs> <laughs> However, uh, what occurs to me reading your scenario there is that um, it's remarkably sound for a 15-year-old big horse ex advanced eventer. Um, I would have said that uh, it'd be perfectly reasonable that it might be a little lamer than that, um, it, possibly in more legs. Um, yeah. I think I think the important thing here is to have a, a, a ideally in a you know a, a, the the purchaser may be there, but but if they're not there, to strike up that relationship with them in, in the communication to make sure that their expectations are within normal limits, because. Um, if their expectations are that they're going to buy this horse and find it to be 100%, then they are almost certainly going to be a bit disappointed. Uh, you're hoping for a realistic purchaser here. Somebody who realizes they're getting uh, a fair bit of horse um, for often a reasonable amount of money as a schoolmaster um, and that they should not have that expectation of perfection and a guarantee that so many people seem to Okay, so all, all that's brilliant, but what are you actually writing on the certificate? So I am going to note that it's, um, that you know, I have noted that he's slightly lame right height. Um, when so you're going to use that word, this horse was lame. You're going to put lameness on the certificate, yeah? Uh, more than happy to in this event and pass the horse. Yeah. Uh, and state that given the horse's um, mileage, age, etc., um, that, that this will not, in my opinion, it's quite possible that this will not affect uh, its suitability for general riding purposes um, and that within acceptable limits for a horse of that age and stage. Yeah, that's good. I, I, I couldn't disagree with you, but I think it's, I think sometimes people are tempted to, to sort of do all that calculating, go through all that thought process that you have in their head and then think, well, I better not put that it's lame on the certificate because that will just muddy the waters. So they go away carrying all that risk themselves. But I think you're absolutely right. It's got to be down on paper. We've got to be up front with the clients. It's them that are taking the risk after all, not you. And um, why not tell them that it was lame, but tell them that you think it's, it'll probably still do the job. I often comfort them with the fact that, you know, some of these horses that are still out there competing at that level are quite lame. <laughs> Um, and and uh, and uh, they're very successful at very high levels and often suffering from lamenesses. Here we have a horse who's effectively retired from that that program and, and is only one one out of five lame. But I'm quite comfortable to put on the form it's lame, um, uh, but but say that I believe it's suitable for 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 the purpose for which it's intended. Yeah, would, would, would you ever describe that as? short on right hind on right circle i uh -huh. not, not use the word lame you you you've discussed it and you uh, because sometimes you'll look at horses and think it is it isn't it or um oh come on yeah. you know a lame horse when you see one <laughs> <laughs> right, right, good riders will make lame horses look sound don't they you know a lame horse when you see one why aren't you going to say lameness <laughs> Are we I, going to start I, asked, I wanted to find out whether Graham as the opposition did that. Just. <laughs> it, it depends what hat I'm wearing, doesn't it? I mean, I, I regularly use the word poor mover or um, gate abnormality um, with a different hat on. But I, <laughs> however, I do believe that um, 
that I think at a vetting I might be expected to note that it is a little lame, lame. and I just don't have a problem with that. Um, uh, by, as I say, I'm quite happy to state it, to uh, say that it's suitable, and then uh, if, if insurance is an issue, well, so be it. I, it shouldn't be if they've read what I've written, but there you go, if that's up to the insurance company. But I, I take your point, Kemi. But if it looked a little short, I'd say it was a little short. If it looked lame, I'd say it was lame. I, well, we, we with a VBS hat on, I'd, I'd much rather you said it was lame. I, uh, <laughs> because, because afterwards, when the, when the purchaser's usual vet tells them it's lame, they, the, the, the purchaser will undoubtedly see a world of difference between a horse that's a little short or not a great mover and a horse that's lame because lameness is suddenly now the worst possible thing in the world so if you think it's lame i'd much rather you said it was lame rather than trying to dress that up in some um how can i i better not say what sort of language it is that refers to bad movers but that sort of language <laughs> yeah so uh, there's been a couple of questions come in more about flexions on stage five. Um, would people always repeat flexions in stage five? Would you do it only if you're concerned or borderline at stage two? But personally, I, only if only if concerned um, there, I it's certainly not a routine for me to repeat them at uh, stage five. Yeah, same, same. Only if I'm concerned or I've managed to forget what my flexions look like when I started due to senility. So I have to do them again. But um, but you know, you're dealing with a different scenario, aren't you, really, after exercise? So flexion may not be the same. So um, I would probably I would probably not do it very often. OK, similar sort of theme about risk warnings and, and the imperfect horse, because let's face it, most of them are. Um, this is a seven-year-old at your um, eventer that um, has already done a bit. Um, it's got a real future in front of it, hopefully, and the purchasers definitely got their eyes on badminton one day. Um, during stage three, you hear a slight noise, um, an abnormal inspiratory noise. You, you, you managed to work out it was an inspiratory noise, and it, it persists for a few circuits, but then you're struggling to hear it after that. And perhaps that's one scenario at the same time can you also consider and let's say cough three or four times during stage three instead of this inspiratory noise it it coughs three or four times but then doesn't cough anymore how, how are you going to deal with those please graham you can start this time ah right okay well um it's a very good chance in my case that i wouldn't hear it um <laughs> so so actually there really wouldn't be a problem here uh, because I wouldn't have heard it in the first few circuits, and then there wasn't one. So there would, so I'd be more than happy to state that I didn't believe there was a noise. Uh, if I was able to hear the noise, which most likely um, has disappeared, obviously quite quickly. Uh, my gut feeling is, if I heard it and then I couldn't hear it anymore, I continued with stage three, which obviously involved more strenuous exercise potentially galloping and so on, and I still couldn't hear a noise, I would probably be happy to, as I said, not have heard a noise at yeah. that betting. Um, the coughing scenario you just mentioned is a different, I, I don't believe a horse should cough during a vetting. I think 
I think if it coughs once when it um, starts to exercise, I, I will often note that it did cough once. If it starts to cough more than once during stage three or at any time during the betting, then I am beginning to get more concerned. So I think, I think it is possibly fair to, to ignore the one cough, but I'm not sure that it's acceptable to ignore two, three or more. So what, what do you do then? It, it, let's say it's coughed three times. Um, so you're not ignoring it. You're going to have to talk to the purchaser about it. You're going to put it on the certificate, I presume. Um, what, what do you do? They say, well, it's never done that before. It, can you come back and bet it again in a fortnight? Uh, so so it, do I mention it? Yes, it's coughed several times during the betting. Um, the, then the, there's probably a protracted... Uh, discussion about why it's coughing um, and obviously I'm not able to answer the purchaser's questions I mean, has it got an allergy do you think it's got a virus you know I don't know um, the vendor will probably be saying well it, it's never coughed before um, I'm not particularly happy with a horse that's coughed several times during a vetting so my my I think the my, my stance on that would be that I'm, I'm not really happy that it's coughed so many, you know, several times or more. Yeah. Okay. So Ian, then, would, would you go and, and bet it then? Say Potsy's failed it. It's by the sound of things. They ring you up next. Are you going to go and bet it? Well, I, I, I think you, um, yes, you, 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 you could do. You're on another day. If you've got the history, the history goes on, on the form. I, because a horse that's, coughed isn't necessarily going to cough forevermore um with it and you, you you've got a, the, the the allergy side of things what was the stable like um there where where's it going to uh, how's, how's it going to be kept there so i I, th I think you can do and i think i would be putting on the certificate occasional or two, two or three coughs at the onset of strenuous exercise i i would put that on a certificate and if it then genuinely did clear i i would be um reasonably happy on the balance of probabilities that that will be okay and, and, I think the the same, the, and, and the same with the the noise there i would agree with graham there if if they genuinely disappear um that's fine and i the sort of thing i'd be saying to the purchaser is you know i thought this was going to be a Whistler or a Rora, you know, when he started off, but it all cleared, so I'm I'm happy. Okay, so you've you've mentioned this horse that's coughed two or three times at the start of stage three, and and it seems to have gone on fine after that. And on the balance of probabilities, you thought it was okay, and you, you're vetting it for me. And I said, well, I, I don't. Can you just if it's going to be okay, can you not mention that coughing at all because the insurers are going to exclude it from uh, respiratory disease if you put that on there. So if you think it's going to be okay, can you just not bother writing that down at all? please uh, no it, it will go go on the certificate uh, there and and i i, I think that the the insure you can explain to the purchaser we, we're looking at on the balance of probabilities the insurers are looking at is it any greater risk at all which is a very different assessment and it, it's often quite useful to say look i i think it's okay and therefore if there is an exclusion it, it, you know it, it's not going to be a problem if, if it does cause the problem, then the insurance company was right to have an exclusion on. So, no, I, I wouldn't be pressured to not put it on from insurance uh, purposes. 
That's a great answer. Can you just say that again slowly? Because I think that is a really good answer. and People need to listen to that. It's all right. We've got it recorded. Have you? Okay. <laughs> Along that line, we've had a query about um, are there any situations or findings that you would note down on your worksheets, but you wouldn't put on the certificate? And if there are, could you give examples? <laughs> I, I think um, there may be um, a, a case the, um, the of the uh, palpation of the back. David, you, you had that coming up, I think you said. Yeah, do you want to go to that now? Well, I, I, I mean, that, that is an, an example which throws um, a, this sort of question up, you know, what's within normal limits or not. Yeah, okay. Well, let's, um, let's look at that one and... Uh... Perhaps you can address Sarah's question in, 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 in dealing with this. So we've got a 12 year old warm blood cross, general riding club and hunting. Stage two, the horse reacts to an exaggerated and in an exaggerated way when you're palpating it under the saddle and up towards the, um, the, 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 the sacral region. Um, it's sound in hand, um, mild response to handle inflection test. It tacks up absolutely fine. There's no problem when the horse is mounted from the ground. Um, it, it, it moves without lameness, but there's possibly a little bit of a toe drag on, on the circle um, when ridden. So there we go. That's the story. I'm sure we've all seen those. Um, how are you going to assess that, address that? And by the sound of it, it sounds to me like you're going to make a note of it in your, in your workbook, but not tell anybody about it. No, no. well, I, I, I think it, to answer the question that came in, the first part of that is, you know, the, these horses that do, um, there's a huge range of reaction, is, isn't there, when you palpate the horses back in the sacroiliac region, and it will vary from person to person, depending on how you actually do it. And I, I think the big, and you expect them to have a reflex, and, and you may be concerned if you can't get a horse to move and uh, show a reflex. And I, I think you need to, try and decide is that within a normal limit the range of normality as opposed to every horse that um, reacts is abnormal and so that sort of thing I would put in my notes and talk about and not necessarily put on the certificate if if there were associated other clinical signs with it you're, you're then going to come to the decision is that reaction related to the toe drag or, or are they un unrelated? So I, I certainly think um, response to palpation there, and you, you might find the same thing if you're palpating horses' tendons, you know, that ones that are quite flinchy on the superficial flexor, but they are on the other one as well. And is, is that a normal or not? But you, use of hoof testers with it, they, where they, it was quite reactive. I mean, I, um, pe people, I, I don't, I don't think everyone uses hoof testers at a, an examination uh, there. But if, if you get quite a reaction, but the horse is um, doesn't show any lameness in all other ways, then I probably wouldn't put that on the certificate. Well, I, I no, I, I wouldn't put it on the certificate. It would be in my notes. Um, so what you, if I've got you right, then are you saying that if that there are many, many, many signs that horses can show that that um, many symptoms that have a range of normality around the, the way they're characterized. And you're saying that 
you might record in your notes where that horse fit in the range of normality. But if it, if it if it's straight outside of the range of normality, then you're going to put it on the certificate. Is that? Is yeah, that yeah, and and, and, I, and I think there's a that's where you make a judgment, and um, I, my judgment may be different than Graham's or, or someone else's. But yeah, that's yeah, what you're stand, standing behind. And I guess it's why it's an awful lot easier to do this job if you've had the more experience you've had, so that your experience of the range of normality is rather more grounded in in experience. Graham, do you want to comment on this one at all? Yeah, I, th I think this is a case of these backs is a case of the more I do, the more confused I probably have become over the years. And I think, it's, as Ian mentioned, you know, you get the hyper reactive horse who bends and twists and sinks um, when you palpate um, in, in, the, in your standard fashion. And then you get the one that doesn't move an inch when you try to stimulate it with those uh, cutaneous reflexes. And um, I suppose I, I, I go through the process um, and uh, I do the same at every, every pre-purchase examination. But at the end of the day, I probably just have it logged in the back of my mind what I found. When the saddle goes on, I have a good look. When the rider gets on, I keep an eye on it. Um, I like to see, have a look at it in, in, in canter to see how it's moving its spine in canter and try and then relate back to my findings in stage one to see if anything I see ties up. I think it's a, a really difficult area. I'm sure there'll be others with wildly different opinions, but I think that whole examination of the back area, despite having attended numerous CPDs over it, on it over the years, I still find that a very difficult area to evaluate. And um, yeah. it's remarkable how many of those that some of those thoroughbreds, the fine skin thoroughbreds will sink to the ground sometimes when you palpate them up behind the saddle, almost almost dropping to their stifles and their hocks. And yet you x-ray them and you have a good look at them and you cannot find anything wrong. Just on the subject of x-raying, let's assume this horse doesn't palpate um, with any problems. Um, your purchaser is asking you to take x-rays, like, like often is the case, they say, we'll do these for insurance and any others you think are a good idea, Graham. Um, are, are you going to x-ray the bag? <laughs> That's a really good question. I, I, think, I think, again, the trigger for the x-ray is possibly requiring a bit more of a finding than just, a, if you like, either a hyper-reactive horse or a horse that um, uh, you know, um, it, it, I think the hyperreactive horse um, doesn't trigger me thinking I need to X-ray if I if I like it under saddle cantering. Um, I think the rock solid horse who you cannot stimulate, you seem to get any response from the um, from the horse when you palpate his spine, who then goes out and looks a little bit wooden. That that would definitely possibly you know, trigger me to think that maybe some radiographs would be indicated. I just have to make a judgment on the overall examination, I believe. And I think we've discussed before, the minefield is that if you, if you ignore all your findings and go and take a load of x-rays, um, you will quite possibly find some kissing spines. Um, and then that brings into play another set of thought processes because what do we know about the relationship between um, pathology there and and pain 
Yeah. I, I, I beg the, I, I pose the question. I, I don't know the answer. Well, I think the, the European Equine Veterinary Association came out with that statement a couple of years ago, didn't they? That, that said that in horses without clinical symptoms, that their view was that it, in, in the context of a pre-purchase examination, the radiographs weren't particularly helpful. But we'll, um, we'll leave that there for now and move on because time's cracking on. Um, perhaps, Greg, if you could just start with this one and then, Ian, I'll come to you as we develop it. But this is... Uh, um, the Declaration of Prior Knowledge, which you will be familiar with on the standard certificate. What do you do in your practice to enable you to complete this section? How, how much investigating do you do um, as, to, as to whether or not, um, to the best of your knowledge, the seller is a, is a, is a client or, or whether you've seen the horse before and, and talk us through um, it? So, sorry, you're asking me, are you? Yeah. 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 Um, so I think... Uh, it's fairly routine that if a client rings me directly and says they'd like this horse vetted, um, I'm 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 fairly sure that it's um, uh, a client of the practice. Um, I I I ring my office and say, look, um, you know, what do we know about this horse? And I and I, I it happened two days ago. I gave I gave my office the true name of the horse. And I gave them the stable name of the horse, which found two different bits of history. Um, and then I guessed at a third possible name for the horse, given that it was a, a foreign sounding name and I shortened it and I found a third bit of history. Um, so my suggested names managed to produce three different records on that horse. Um, if you just plugged in the name that I was given, I would have only found the vaccinations. That was just within my own practice of doing a search. But I do tend to rely on the receptionist uh, who's going to do the pro forma to investigate the history. But I do encourage them to broaden their investigations by using a little bit of uh, intuition and common sense. As far as ringing other owners, uh, previous owners of that horse, I'm looking for history further back. Um, I can't say that I personally run around trying to investigate that angle too much. Usually I just go with the current owner and their um, and the history. So it's quite possible the horse could have been treated at your practice under a different owner's name um, and um, you wouldn't you wouldn't be aware of that when you were doing the vetting. Well if if the horse's name brought up two or three owners that would be very helpful um but if it didn't then i probably wouldn't be necessarily looking sure, further. sure. and do you want to um do you want to just well add anything to that or, or if you disagree at all and also talk a little bit about this the scenario that you have you 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 as as is the case with other practices have a well historically had branches within bmw and bmw itself is now part of cvs how much of a practice are you looking at as far as this is concerned? Would you look at the, the records for BMW Cardiff as well as uh, Willersley or Redstone? Yeah, um, yes, uh, we, we would um, look, look at the whole site. I mean, the practice management system allows that because the client uh, comes up uh, there. So uh, I, I would be expecting the receptionist to have asked the questions and then it would be on the uh, the 
pro forma that that's done that they are um, are a client and you know hope, hopefully the hi history will be attached to it and if it's not you'll um, take a look at it and I'll um, rely on the history on the clinical notes rather than delving any further I, I certainly wouldn't be going back and looking at x-rays that were taken and checking that I agreed with what was done before or anything like that so okay well that's interesting I mean I, we've certainly had it not not a lot but we have had a bit of experience where um, the the history on the practice computer system was minimalistic shall I call it and um, when you did delve into it um, the, there were some radiographs that were quite telling actually and um, indicated that this horse was really quite a high risk um, it may be that you'd have it could have been picked up on for example, the history also showed that it had had um, joints injected on a regular basis, two or three times a season. Um, and um, but, but you know, you're saying it, it is on the history or not on the history? Well, yeah. So the, the fact that it's been uh, medicated might be on the history, and the fact that it's been radiographed might be on the history. But in that situation, would you still not go back and look at the radiograph? Um, I would likely speak to the vet who dealt with it. Okay. There and ask them, but you know, they, we got to keep you in a job, David. If me not looking at the X-rays keeps you in business, then all well and good. Good man. Good man. <laughs> all right. Well, let's just expand on that um, scenario a little bit more then, because I think whilst it caused a bit of difficulty when the the Royal College requirement in this regard came in a few years back. I think it's bedded in reasonably well now. Um, but one area which isn't explicit on the certificate, um, but um, is generally contained within the, the Royal College guidance on certification and um, in their attitude towards um, the relationship with the vendor. So here we've got a relationship with the vendor. You'll have to imagine uh, that, that you were in this scenario, please, Ian, and um, tell me tell me what your thoughts are and how this is going to influence um, influence you. you. Basically, the vendor is an old mate of yours from school, and uh, you're in touch with them. You meet up with them. You go to the pub with them. Yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, this is this is all about the um, conflict of interest there, and um, I. I I've certainly changed my view with that, having been involved in a case at, which went to the Royal College um, uh, over whether a conflict of interest, wh whether there was a conflict of interest and what was disclosed or not. And in in that case or out of it, it was clear that the college um, state in their pre-purchase uh, part of the code of professional conduct, they talk about it has to be fair and perceived to be fair, the examination. And we, we all know that um, if they're a, the vendor is a client, then everyone has to be happy. The vendor has to be happy, purchaser has to be happy, and the vet as, as well has to be happy that you can do um, a, a job on behalf of the purchaser and you're not gonna be conflicted. What um, and why a case that I was in, involved in went to the college is where the friendship was not known to the purchaser and um, the uh, solicitors there could not understand why veterinary surgeons do not tell uh, their clients of any potential conflict of interest. I know this person, they're a friend, they're an old school friend, I go on 
holiday with them, I go hunting with them, and they may or may not be clients. But I, I think that the part that they kept coming back to was another section of the um, Code of Professional Conduct, which says that veterinary surgeons must provide independent and impartial advice and inform a client of any conflict of interest. And, and so I would change now and say that um, if, if in doubt, why not tell them? You, you, you might think it's um, that, that you know the person and you, you have to be happy that you can do it and, and you're not conflicted. And I think there's, in, in equine practice, you, you know so many people around you, you're going to know the people uh, well. So I, I, I think it's just easier to tell um, them, their friends, I, I see them <laughs> do, do whatever, and then do, do the um, e examination. And yeah. on the performers, again, something that they brought up at the college is, so, so you tick the box that says the vendor um, is a client, but have you ticked the box that says, and I told the purchaser that the vendor was a client? And, and they, were, they were, I think they're interesting things. It's just an easy thing to, to do and take away the worry. Yeah, sure. Although, I mean, the certificate makes it plain that you can say on there whether the, the purchaser, the vendor is a client or not. But are you making the point that you should really address that before you do the vetting rather than after the vetting? Is that... I, I think before you do the vetting, when you when you speak to the purchaser, then if there's any doubt about there being a conflict of interest, why not tell sure. the uh, person? And and I, um, I didn't, I never used to do that. And um, the the uh, poor person who had, was faced in front of the college with, with that and you think about it and I thought I'd have done exactly what they did but I might change that now because it's not a very pleasant time going through the college just sure. because you didn't tell the purchaser that you were a friend of the vendor. Yeah, I mean, whether, it's, it's, whether, it's, whether quite, not. it's quite telling really, and possibly a little bit unusual but you know the, the Royal College have a, an advice note specifically on doing pre-purchase examinations that there aren't many veterinary acts um, that have their own specific advice note, but there is one on doing purchase examinations. And, and that's where the college say that personal relationships with the veterinary surgeon um, should be um, avoided um, in, in the context of a pre-purchase examination. And, and if they do exist, then certainly the, the, the purchaser needs to be made aware of them. I, I think, unless they've changed that, David, in the, they didn't mention friendship in the pre-purchase part is that the the friendship side they, they, they just talk about clients in the under the pre-purchase section well not not now they don't they, and uh, they, well, they, they now it says and or has a personal relationship there you go i haven't read that but that, that when the case was brought um they were separate that yeah it, sure. it wasn't mentioned i guess there's always been um advice from the college on the 10, well, it used to be 12, but now 10 principles of certification, which talks about conflicts of interest as well. So um, there we go. It isn't, it isn't, um, it isn't completely new. Um, we're so just, to run... Sorry, well, go yeah, on, it's all right. We've just had a few more questions come in. They're slightly varied. Um, so if the purchaser is not present at the PPE, do you discuss findings with the vendor at all if they are not going 
in in advance of the PPE if they're not going to be there. Oh, sorry, I read two, half of one and half another. If the purchaser is not present at the PPE, do you discuss findings with the vendor at all before you speak to the purchaser? No. no I, I would, not not in detail. You, you might say things like, I've, I've got one or two things to discuss. You saw me looking at that lump a lot, or, but no, don't. Um, it's sort of out of courtesy. Here's a list of things I'm going to discuss uh, with the purchaser. Um, but uh, less rather than more. Yeah, it's. I wouldn't discuss it with the with the vendor. I might, as Ian said, list. I might say I've got a few things to discuss, and they include the, the following. Um, but I certainly wouldn't get into discussions about it. Do you ever having trouble whether have trouble deciding whether to deem suitable or not? Um, having discussed your findings with the purchaser, including any discussion of insurance, would you let that influence whether or not you think um, you pass or fail it? That's a good question. Um, I, I, I think the answer is yeah, yes, you come, come away with your list of findings and you, um, you hope you have a good idea of what the purchaser wants and so you might you'll have it in your mind which way you're going to go, but could e easily be swayed. If someone said, no, look, I, I really don't want one that's got that, then that becomes, um, yeah, I, I would change to being suitable or not, not suitable. And, that, and, the, and we see the difference in the sales, thoroughbred sales, when you're betting off afterwards, sometimes you, you, you might think, oh, sarcoid, that's not going to stop a horse racing. And so, it, it, you say it's okay, um, and someone comes up and says, I don't want a horse with a sarcoid. And you, you sort of say, well, I'm, I'm afraid the, the terms of the conditions are, we don't think it will affect the horse racing, and you, you've got to have it. So I'm not quite sure what your answer was so there. <laughs> so is that are you saying that you that you will change your overarching opinion in, 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 in the pri private um say i sometimes have not made the final decision till you've discussed the findings with the purchaser okay and i i think that um it's almost it's quite difficult to not do that isn't it um, because of the vibes you get from the purchaser when you're talking to them, it's quite difficult not to be influenced by that. Um, um, however, I do think it's really important that we all understand that we're not advising people to buy these horses or not. That is not our role. They, they, they have to do their own risk assessment on whether or not they want to buy the horse on the basis of what, what we found and reported to them. So we're not advising them to buy it or to not buy it. What, what the certificate actually says is that we think that it'll probably be all right or it probably won't be all right, but we've found these issues. And then it's up to the purchaser whether they buy it or not. Uh, you know, I, I do think that one of the common features that we hear when we're talking on the, the course that we teach, which is mostly for, for guys that have, have done very few, if any, vettings, is this, this worry that they feel that they've got to make the decision as to whether the sale goes through or not. And, and it really isn't the vet's decision. I think as vets, we're there to provide objective information and our objective opinion, but it, 
the purchaser has to decide. It's, it's their money, it's their risk, it's their child that's going to be riding it. It's them that may or may not be interested in insurance. And our job is really limited to explaining the relevance of the clinical features that we find. Um, and I think if we divest ourselves of that responsibility of feeling that the whole deal is dependent on us, it very often is, don't get me wrong, but that's up to the client whether it is or not. It's not up to us. And uh, I think that can make quite a difference. I think, I, I think, I think the point you made recently uh, that's been mentioned, I think, in recent uh, correspondence about perhaps tweaking the whole pre-purchase uh, examination towards risk level um, might be a step forward, in my opinion. Um, I think I would prefer that. Um, it's certainly common in Germany. Um, I'm not sure about Holland, but definitely in Germany, where where we talk about low, low, medium, medium, high risk, and I think that might be. I hope that becomes, um, you know, gets further discussed and possibly ends up being the standard. Certainly, uh, uh, when when we get to see cases where a horse has has not gone so well after a purchase and. Uh, and the, the vetting's clearly been a very thorough vetting has been done. A, a really good job has been done and various bits and pieces have been found and probably discussed as well, you know, in, in the verbal conversation with the purchaser. But then sadly, one of these things manifests and ends up causing a problem for the horse. And unless the fact, if, if, the, if the guy that's done the vetting has put those little words on the certificate, this increases the risk, then, you know, that solves a huge number of problems as far as we're concerned. And I don't think many of us would doubt when we are discussing issues that we found at vetting that we're discussing them because they do increase the risk of purchase. And I think we should be more willing and ready to write on the certificate that this increases the risk a lot, as you say, or, or not a lot or marginally or you know put some flavor on the risk for the for the clients but if we're if we're going to give an overarching opinion which is generally favorable despite having found abnormalities then let's be explicit and point that out on the certificate and and be very very clear to the purchaser that this horse represents an increased risk over a horse that doesn't have those abnormalities that we've pointed out but nevertheless on the balance of probabilities i think it'll be all right I, yeah, I, I think we've got to make, make, help make a decision. I, I mean, there's, with, there's such a range of purchasers, aren't they, from the professional and the eventers to the kids, family, ponies and that. And, and these people want, want your opinion. Do, do you think on the balance, i.e., is it more likely to be okay for me than, than not? And I, and I think that's what the job is to do for them. And, and just to say to someone, it's medium risk. Well, what, what, what does that mean to someone who doesn't really know? No, I wasn't suggesting that, Cammy. I was suggesting that if you're going to say that you think on balance it'll be all right, I don't think we should send them away necessarily thinking that therefore they've got a perfect horse. So if on balance you're going to pass it in old money, um, but you've found one or two bits and pieces, why not be explicit and say, on balance, I think this horse will be good for you. I think it'll do your job. But it is, there is a risk because it's got X, Y and Z. Yeah, I, I guess, and that, and that's where I I use the terms implications of that that you know stiff bit behind you you know what, what those the schoolmaster things that you you you've discussed with with them, and so yeah, um, 
I guess we're, we're saying the, the same thing, but I, I, I do think we, we have to help people with whether we think it would be suitable for them. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But sometimes you'll bet a horse and you'll find absolutely nothing wrong with it. And you're gonna say you think it'll be suitable. Another time for exactly the same purchase, you'll, you'll bet a horse that you think will be okay, but you go away with one or two doubts. Um, I suppose what I'm saying is if, if you as the vet are going away with one or two doubts, so should the purchaser. Yeah. The, the, the interesting thing is in so many other walks of life, for example, investments, they say, are you a low, medium or high risk taker? And part of my discussion with the purchaser, if I don't know them very well, is almost to spend a lot of time chatting and, and somewhere on the line bring up the fact that, that there are risks here it does depend a little bit on how much of a risk you are happy to take. If you are a gambler who likes to take big risk, well then, yep, this is a big risk horse. <laughs> um, if you're not, then don't go there. Um, and, and we do deal with a huge variety of purchases, don't we? Yeah. From the, the paranoid uh, person who just, it must be perfect to the, to the as, as can be said, the professional who says, ah, oh, look, you know, one eye's fine as long as it's got four good legs. So. You know, it, it's it's such a variety, but I do often bring up that word gamble or risk in my discussion, and I think the communication side of things, we, we probably maybe haven't laboured that, but as you know, I can talk forever, and I'm convinced that if I talk to them for long enough, I either bore them to death or put them to sleep, but they don't appear to cause so much trouble. If you spend a long time talking to them, they feel like they've had value, and yes, the paperwork is vital, but that, that chatting afterwards is, is the bit that they really do value. And that's where they form their opinion, not really reading that form. So, um, so I put a lot, of, a lot of stock in the communication and talking about, you almost get to know their personality a little bit and you can sort of get the feel as to whether they are risk takers or not, or a little bit risky or not at all risky. And that does help you form your ultimate opinion yourself sometimes okay i do have some more um i'm going to try and keep them quick um going back to confidentiality um is there not a break in con client confidentiality if you discuss with the purchaser without telling the vendor what you're discussing where the vendor is a client i'll take that if you like it if, if the vendor's a client you've you've agreed to do this vetting on behalf of the purchaser, not your client, the vendor. So in respect of the, the vetting, the, the, your, your client in inverted commas is not your client because at the vetting, your client is the purchaser. And so information that you gain while you're carrying out the purchase is, um, you're gonna share it with your client, the purchaser, you're the factual information at some stage. I think that that's almost inevitable, but your opinion on that information is confidential to, you, to, the, to the purchaser. And that's why I think the guys were saying that they would they'd be polite. They'd tell the vendor, um, well, look, you'll have noticed that I was palpating that big lump on its left fore cannon. Um, I need to talk about that with, the, with my client, the purchaser. So they, they, they're going to be factual about their findings and honest and upfront with the vendor about things, facts. But their opinion is owned and confidential to the purchaser. And a, a follow on for, for that with uh, radiographs. If I, I've certainly had cases where you've done the clinical examination, horse is fine, take 
take the radiographs, lots of chips in fetlock joints, and so the purchaser doesn't want it. Though those radiographs belong to the purchaser, and I I would say to the purchaser, do you mind if I send these to the vendor, or you know, with them to help them? But I I wouldn't do it without asking the purchaser whether the vendor could have them or not. Thank you. And then, um, has the VDS had any cases against them, against vets, where the vendor has taken a case for a horse failing a vetting? And secondly, do you record videos or photos during vetting, say if the client's not there or there's something you're particularly worried, unsure about? So I'll, I'll take the VDS one there. The, I wouldn't say that we haven't had vendors that have been unhappy with vets um, for failing a horse, and that, that is quite, quite common. But in the opinion of the vet at the vetting is not, doesn't involve any duty to the vendor. So they owe no duty to the vendor in the opinion that they give um, to their client, the purchaser. So just because they disagree with that opinion, um, the, 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 the vendor has no cause of action against the vetting vet. So I don't think we've ever had a claim that we've paid out on or not been able to defend in that regard. There are, there are occasions where the vendor can claim against the vet. So if, if you're reckless in performing your hind leg flexion and tip the horse over and it fractures its pelvis, for example, um, you've now injured that vendor's horse through, let's say, reckless or negligent performance of a flexion test. And in that situation, the, uh, the, the vendor would have a claim, a legitimate claim against you, the vet. Um, because you do owe them a duty to act reasonably in the conduct of your examination, but I don't think you owe them a duty in respect of your opinion on the findings of your examination. I'll let uh, Graham or Ian answer the, the second question. You have to remind me of it. <laughs> uh, do you record um, videos or photos during vettings? Um, no. Uh, I, uh, um, I, <laughs> No, no, um, never have. Um, I've, I've started to video quite a lot at vettings. Um, I certainly often video the circles, uh, the lunging on a circle at trot, um, and I sometimes video bits of the ridden work. Um, I find for over for when you're vetting for an American purchaser, or often even for Dutch and German purchasers they actually want videos and request them. So, um, because often their vet is going to have a look anyway. So you sort of have to take videos, but I do take videos of quite a lot of situations where there is something to see and I want to review it myself and I want to discuss it with the purchaser so that they, because they weren't present, can see what I'm talking about. So I have started to do it more. Um, if I'm honest, yeah, I have started to record more of what I see. Thank you. Um, and then got a couple more about what you write down and what you don't. Um, and I think that's just backing up what you said about um, writing things down. We have had one person say, um, I've observed a reasonable number of examples where vets discuss and write down findings, increasing risk 
not on the certificate, then write very little, if anything, on the certificate itself. The purchaser is aware of the risk, but is, brackets, un, close brackets, intentionally fraudulent when it's insured, uninsured. In, any thoughts? Don't, don't get into that territory. Don't do it. <laughs> I, 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 absolutely. Yeah, yeah, don't, don't, don't do it. Be sympathetic in what you write. Write it down. You think it's of no clinical significance. You do. Yeah, just don't entertain two certificates or not writing things down because you think it'll affect insurance. I think that's right. Is it no clinical significance within acceptable limits, within normal limits, whatever uh, comments can be made to, um, to, to, if you like, attempt to um, diffuse something from uh, with, uh, but that's all i would do is what ian said is just make those those caveats to a comment and one last one intraoral exams to what extent mm. david cammy okay so so for, for the first thing uh, i guess is you you're looking at the horse is, is it is it um a fit looking horse so i.e it can eat it, can, it does get nutrition it's not it's not a thin horse i i do like the idea of not rushing into a horse and if you do get a chance to see it eating um or what have you then that's a a good thing you're going to look in the stable any evidence of quitting and things and then my examination would be to look looking at the incisors and then looking uh, rarely with a torch some sometimes i will do but opening the mouth holding the tongue looking to the back i i'm not palpating them i'm not putting gags on i'm not using mirrors and what have you unless i see something that uh, worries me swellings smell evidence of quit quitting there but i it is not a detailed um examination of the teeth it is it is a little bit of a changing um seeing this i mean i i believe that probably up until four or five years ago when there was a debate of beaver and a, a change in the guidance notes um the examination that you're described therein was was pretty typical of most i would guess but i do think there's been a little bit of a change in some people rightly or wrongly that they feel that um if we're not going to put a gag in and do a um what you might describe as a, a proper or more full or detailed mouth examination with a, a head torch and a mirror and maybe a maybe an horoscope even that then you're better off not doing it at all i.e you could take the same approach to eyes you know if you're not going to use an ophthalmoscope why do we bother just looking at them from the outside they sort of take that approach and say if we're not going to have a really thorough look in the mouth i'd rather not do half a look do you do you have any sympathy with that graham or, or ian I think I think that is my feeling is that um, you're either in or you're out sort of thing. So once I once I go from what Ian describes, which is pretty much my examination, potentially with a, a torch or, or whatever, or useful daylight, um, and not to forget palpation of the teeth from outside, because you can learn quite a lot from palpating the, the head. Um, but um, once you then open the can, um, that brings into place the use of a gag. When are you going to use the gag? Is the horse a bit tricky? 
how am I going to manage to do a decent examination now? I've got the gag on. I'm going to have to leave it till the end of the vetting. I'll probably have to ask permission to do sedation. Um, so therefore, it must be after I've taken the blood sample with the BDS blood. Um, and then once I've got my mouth open in a gag and I've washed out the mouth, how good am I at doing a dental uh, examination and to what... Um, to, to what depth am I going to do it? I mean, have I got the right tools? Have I got the right knowledge? Um, I prefer Cammy's suggestion that uh, looking, smelling, feeling from the outside, looking at the um, incisors, etc., is going to be my examination. And to date, I haven't put a gag on a horse at a pre-purchase examination ever. And I've never been asked to I've never been put on notice to do a full dental examination at a pre-purchase examination by a, by a purchaser. Hopefully I never am. Thank you. Thank you. Last question. Um, where sellers ask for deposits, which are only refundable, is if the horse fails the vetting. The purchaser often wants you to say the horse is unsuitable for purchase, i.e. fail it, despite it possibly being okay for purchase but the purchaser has decided not to take the risk what do people do <laughs> so i i i think that um you're, you're working on behalf of your purchaser aren't you they're the client and whilst it, it, it's all very well to say, you, you know oh i think this horse is okay for eventing or for hunting that that's almost gets to the um vetting the horse here for whoever's going to come along so i i would have sympathy with once you've discussed your findings with a purchaser if they say that they don't want that horse because because it's got mud fever because it's got sarcoids because it, it's got something which you an, another person with us asking to do the same sort of athletic activity with that horse might take on. I, I'd be sympathetic to the purchaser and try and help them. Graham? Um, yeah, I mean, pretty much the same. It's the purchaser's your client and the purchaser you're trying to look after um, and, and help you to make the right decision. Um, you, at the end of the day, it's. I wouldn't have said it was that, I don't find it that common that um, vendors take a deposit and will only give it back if it fails. Um, what seems to be more common is they'll find you another one. <laughs> you know, in other words, they'll keep your deposit and find another horse and then we get another betting. Um, but um, but uh, yeah, it, it, I'd be like Ian, I would be, I'm working for my purchaser and, uh, and I understand that there is risk here that I've, I've evaluated and presented and they don't want to take that risk. So therefore I will help them. And, and if, they, if they're not happy, I would be saying, right, okay, well, then that's not suitable. I think it, it, if we're absolutely intellectually honest, we'd have to agree that it, it requires a bit of elastic thinking to, to reach that conclusion. Um, but having said that, I don't think there's a problem with that because one of the things that we teach on the course is that when we do vettings, we're not there as the independent arbiter of fair play we're, we're not a referee in this exchange of, of horse between vendor and purchaser 
we are there to protect the interests of the purchaser. And so if we're going to have to be at all creative in our thinking, um, I think it's right that we do so to the protection and benefit of the purchaser um, and not get drawn into thinking. That the problem is that any arrangement whereby the purchaser and the vendor agree that the, the sale will go through on the result of the vetting is misconceived because that just isn't what vettings are about. That horses, you know, we, we all colloquially talk about them passing or failing, but that isn't actually what, what is the purpose of the vetting. And so if they've struck a deal on that basis, um, the deal was, was flawed from the start. Um, <laughs> so I, I think the practical solution that you two have described is, makes perfect sense to me really, and it, it's probably the only way to go. So I think we've, um, I think the guys have done really well and yeah. uh, they deserve a pint. So, uh, <laughs> that is the downside. I can't take you to the bar now. <laughs> it, 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 it's a shame because it would be interesting to hear everyone else's views on what we've um, be, been discussing really, yeah. because it, it is only views, isn't it? It's not um, set. And I, I guess that's where it's quite di difficult. You, you have to, um, assess all the info and come up with a make a decision at the uh, end of it. And and I I don't think sitting on the fence it um, works really. That's not what it's about. We do have um, some other comments here that you can have a look at when we finish, or I can send you a copy of the chat. <laughs> sure, <box. we'll> <laughs> Feeling brave. <laughs> <laughs> Just out of interest, the last comment was um, from an evidence-based veterinary medicine perspective, is there any reporting system where PPE findings are related to future issues? I don't know of one. I don't think there's a reporting system. I have a very distant memory of Paul Farrington presenting a paper where he rather bravely rang up the purchases of the last hundred horses that he'd passed. And um, I think... Off the top of my head, I think at least half of them had gone lame in the intervening six months post-vetting. Um, but no, it'd be a really interesting uh, one to do, but don't ask VDS to sponsor it. <laughs> I, I, th I think if you go to the insurers, they're, they're at times where they do question sometimes the need for vettings because of, you know it, it doesn't stop these horses going lame, does it? Nah. No. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, Horses yeah, move right. house, they go lame, they get a different rider, they get a different surface, they get a different terrain to work on, they change their job, Stabling. everything's yeah. different and um, yeah. that, that causes problems sometimes. This episode of BeaverPod was produced by Beaver. For more details on the benefits of your Beaver membership and the products and services offered, please go to our website at www.beaver.org.uk. Thank you.